digestive issues that don't go away no matter what the protocol spiraling into a chronic stress response under pressure and unable to fall asleep poor cardiovascular health all these are connected in one way and that is through the magical nerve known as the vagus nerve you might be thinking deepa i already know about the vagus nerve Yes, that's probably true, but just stay with me as we explore the more subtle yet potent aspects. The problem is that the vagus nerve is so powerful that poor vagal tone can prevent all healing. Let's come to that in a bit. You might know that we can use the vagus nerve to help regulate critical parts of our health and nervous system. But can we use the vagus nerve to address our old traumas? Can this be the untapped area in solving long-term digestive distress? Can this support your cardiovascular health even if you have cardiovascular disease? In today's podcast we will answer three questions. The first is can these chronic challenges be helped through the vagus nerve? How does the vagus nerve impact our sleep? Can we improve vagal tone even if we have all these challenges? Who better than Dr. Nawaz Habib to break this down? Why? Well, because he's the author of the book Activate Your Vagus Nerve. He's a chiropractor who has understanding of nerves and structure on all health, and he's the host of the Health Upgrade podcast. Let's get started. Hey everyone, I'm Deepa, Light Functional Medicine Practitioner, author and yogini and you're listening to the Sleep Whisperer podcast, the only sleep podcast with conversations and meditations. I'm on a mission to share profoundly insightful sleep conversations with global visionaries that merge together functional medicine and ancient wisdom. Breathe in bliss through weekly guided meditations and let yourself enter the land of dreams. Together, let's unravel the pieces, get to the roots and understand the right tools to transform your sleep completely. Through this podcast, I want you to dream the best version of yourself. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey. Dr. Nawaz, pleasure to have you and always a pleasure to speak to another podcast host because then everything works so differently and um, Vegas Nerve has always been something that I'm fascinated with and I've also written a bit about the Vegas Nerve in my book on sleep which is coming out this year and um, and uh, however this deep dive into the vagus nerve is really something that we must do in on this show and um i know that you have a book on the vagus nerve so we can talk about that at the end and where can people get that um so let's get started a little bit because uh what got you into this direction of writing a book on vagus nerve because it's quite a narrow area to be looking so deeply into and i know there's no other resources like that uh so what prompted that pathway yeah it's a great question i am a student of life 
and um, certain things have stuck out in my in my journey through not only my own health struggles, which we can dig into a little bit, but uh, through my uh, journey becoming a chiropractor and and through my medical science uh, degree that I completed a while ago. So, uh, and one of those things that stuck out to me was the vagus nerve. It really always kind of resonated as this really important piece of our overall health that was truly misunderstood or not fully understood with regards to the importance of it, what it uh, does, in fact, which is so important, and um, the importance of it in connecting the two brains that we have, specifically the, the brain that we know about and the gut, which has uh, even more nerve endings in it than our actual central nervous system brain does. So it always really kind of was this interesting point. And as a chiropractor, I learned about the neurological system. I learned about the brain. I learned about um, adjusting the, the joints around the nervous system. And really for me, neuroscience has always played a really important role in um, my journey. It's always been a really interesting area. And so I always wanted to kind of follow that. And the vagus nerve continued to stick out and the thing that prompted me to get into writing a book about it was I had certain patients that were dealing with specific health struggles, autoimmune type conditions, um, whether they were heavily inflammatory type conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, um, IBS, Crohn's, things that were triggering pain or fibromyalgia type of symptoms. There was a, this overarching belief and this overarching issue of inflammation that was uncontrolled throughout the body. And I did a bit of research, I did a bit of digging, and we tend to forget that inflammation is controlled through a certain system. And that system is called the cholinergic anti-inflammatory system. And that system is mediated through the vagus nerve. For me, that was really the breaking point. That was the, the moment when I realized that there was a reason I was drawn to this specific information and I needed to step down this path. And that's what prompted me to get into vagus nerve as uh, my specialty, I guess. <laughs> Beautiful. And there's so many questions that popped in my head right away after that brief intro, but you did mention your own health challenges. And I would like to speak about that a little bit because, you know, people do resonate so much with the personal story. So was there a reason that you thought to look deeper at inflammation because you had certain aspects of that as well? Yeah, it's a, uh, just like so many people that get into the alternative health areas looking for answers, they tend to be looking for their answers on their own health struggles, something that they didn't feel was sufficient enough with, the, with regards to the information they were given previously. I, uh, when I was completing chiropractic college, was in absolutely horrendous health. I weighed 250 pounds. I had high blood pressure. I was borderline diabetic. I was dealing with significant health struggles in my 20s that most people shouldn't ever deal with in their 50s and 60s. And that was leading to energy issues. That was leading to me not being able to show up and, and really do the work that I needed to do. I was always mentally there but physically was just incapable of being the best version of myself and couldn't figure out what was causing a lot of that weight gain 
what was causing a lot of that, that backend inflammation that was triggering a lot of these issues personally. And so my journey led me as I was in chiropractic college, it was interesting because I was learning about being healthy and sharing health habits with people and yet wasn't really living it myself. And as I got out of chiropractic college and stepped into the world working with patients, I noticed that my energy was not good. I noticed that a lot of these struggles continued uh, through practice. And I also noticed that a lot of my patients were dealing with very similar struggles. And I wanted to see if there was a way beyond physical manipulation, beyond acupuncture, beyond the, the modalities that I had learned in chiropractic college to really address the root cause of these problems. And that led me towards functional medicine. I was very, very lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, one of your previous guests on the podcast actually was my introduction to uh, functional medicine. It was Dr. Sachin Patel, who was my, uh, my lead-in, my, uh, my mentor, and uh, really prompted it for me. It was a really chance encounter where I was standing at a desk of a clinic that I was working at part-time. I was only there one evening per week and just so happened that he walked in that evening, that he lived in the condominium building above where the clinic that I was working was. His wife, uh, also named Deepa, had been in a car accident and um, needed to get chiropractic care for her uh, issues. But he he himself was a chiropractor, Sachin, and he walked in and he said, I'm a chiropractor, but I don't do this kind of care anymore. My wife needs to get chiropractic. Uh, I'd like to set up some, some time. And I was standing in a spot where I'm rarely standing. And he, uh, I, I asked him immediately when, when he came in, I said, well, if you're a chiropractor, what else do you do? And he said, I practice functional medicine. I said, what is that? And so he went into the office. He was booking some time with um, the owner of the clinic at the time. As he stepped out, I ran after him and I, I ran to get information with regards to what he was doing. What is this functional medicine thing you're talking about? And he graciously shared information. He met with me at a coffee shop multiple times in the mornings at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning and just started prompting and guiding me down this path. And that led me to really understand that I needed to look deeper in my own health struggles I needed to understand why the problem was happening, understand the root cause. And once I started to do that, I started to make shifts within my diet, within my daily schedule, within my activity levels, within my relationships. And things just started to prompt in a very positive way. I ended up eliminating 75 pounds of body weight off of me, which was a big deal. I ended up having boundless energy, something that I never thought was truly uh possible. I was waking up excited and ready to go at 5.30 in the morning, uh, ready to, to take on the world and do better. And my patients started to notice and my family started to notice and people took notice of what was going on. And as I continued down this path, I started getting trained in functional medicine and started sharing this with more and more patients. That was my initial story, my initial prompt to get into sharing this amazing tool with so many different people. I love that story, Dr. Nawaz. I mean, I'm always 
I always get goosebumps when I hear these strange coincidences and I <laughs> totally believe in them. And one thing stood out for me at the beginning when you said that I was showing up physic- um, mentally, but I wasn't really showing up physically. And I was just thinking that's actually not true for so many people that they can't show up mentally or physically when their health is in shambles. And maybe it's just your alert mind that kept you uh able to be that way and uh, i was listening to dr bob recently who's called the drugless doctor and he was talking about uh how when someone has misalignment in the spine especially at the neck um there are certain nerves that connect to the heart and how people who have bad posture can be predisposed to developing cardiovascular disease and that was just fascinating to me so i'm assuming that the vagus nerve has something to do with all what he spoke about but let's jump into the conversation what is the vagus nerve you spoke about the two brains and i would love for you to just take us through a magic school bus right through the vagus nerve itself i love it magic school bus references always make me happy i um so the vagus nerve is a, a very interesting and outlier type of nerve compared to all of the different nerves that we have within the body it is the 10th cranial nerve and there's actually two of them there's one on the left and one on the right and these nerves extend out from our brainstem now we have 12 pairs of cranial nerves and these cranial nerves for the most part remain within the cranial cavity they remain within the head these are like things like the facial nerve that goes to muscles in in and around the face these are things like the optic nerve the um glossopharyngeal nerve they're all doing something different they're doing something with the tongue they're doing something with the cheek they're doing something with the eyelid or what not they they tend to be focused on face facial expression and anything to do with kind of the the head cavity but there's one nerve that extends out and that is the vagus nerve and that one extends down uh it sends a couple of branches out one to the ear we'll talk about what that does uh it sends uh, as it comes down through the neck uh and one on each side it actually courses alongside the two most important blood vessels in our body with regards to getting blood to and from the brain and that's the carotid artery and the jugular vein so if we actually were to look at where it's located physically where it's located it's within the the carotid sheath meaning that there's a, a piece of tissue that surrounds the carotid artery the jugular vein and the vagus nerve those are the three pieces of uh information passing and and nutrient passing that occur through the neck that are really really important to our overall function and the courses down through the neck there's certain branches that come out there that are sent to the uh pharynx and larynx so these are muscles at the back of the throat the muscles that go through into the neck and those muscles around the vocal cords these are important to remember we'll talk about those later as well and it continues on down now this is where it gets crazy where the vagus nerve comes down into the thorax into that chest area it then they blend together the left and the right and then they extend and literally send a branch to nearly every single organ within the thorax and the abdomen. So there's branches to the heart, there's branches to the lungs. It then continues down through or it has uh branches to the esophagus as well and to the trachea. So it goes down through 
attached to the gut passes through the diaphragm and into our abdomen, into our belly area where it then sends branches to the stomach, small intestine, large intestine, spleen, kidneys, liver, pancreas, you name it. Essentially every organ within our body has a branch of the vagus nerve attaching to it. This is important information. No other nerve in the body does anything like this. It's literally called vagus, meaning vague or wandering. That's why it's called the vagus nerve because it goes to so many different places and anatomists haven't seen anything else like it. It's, it's really that outlier. So that's a very simple magic school bus ride through the vagus nerve. And I, I'm, I'm sure that people really do not think that it has so many connections because a lot of times you know somewhere in the back of your mind that the vagus nerve is important, but to actually understand that there's so many aspects to it and I want us to go through these functions because you spoke about starting with branching out in the year and you did say that it's important. We'll come back to that later. So I'd love for you to go from the source uh, and work your way down and let's just talk about these functions because I'm sure each of them is relevant in different ways to the body and also it needs connection to sleep as well. Yeah, so we will definitely get into the connection with sleep and this is a really, really important piece of the puzzle. For most people, when they learn about the vagus nerve, and I'm talking about uh, clinicians, medical doctors, chiropractors, naturopaths, osteopaths, whatever you are, uh, most of these clinicians learn that the vagus nerve runs what's called our parasympathetic nervous system. And that is absolutely correct. What this means is we have two, um, two branches of what's called the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system controls all of the things that automatically would ha happen within our body that we don't consciously need to think about. Things like digesting our food or detoxifying our blood or clearing out um, toxins from our liver or uh, digestion, et cetera. These are all things that are pumping our heart or breathing for the most part. These are all functions that occur within our body that we're not giving conscious thought to. These are automatic processes, hence the autonomic nervous system. There's two branches to this system. One side is called the sympathetic nervous system and the other side is called the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic side focuses on handling stressors. And it's an important side. We need to ensure that the system works. It's really important because what it does is it prepares us in case of something sudden, something scary, something that's risking our survival. It puts us into a state called fight or flight, okay? So it essentially sends blood flow to specific areas like to our muscles of our arms and our legs. It shunts blood flow away so that it goes to these areas. And so the muscles can either fight or run away from whatever this threat is that's going on. Also causes things like our uh, pupils to dilate really quickly so we can see all of the threats around us. Uh, but it also shunts blood away from our executive function, which is actually the, the front of the brain. So we're not able to think as clearly. We're simply thinking about our survival when we're in the sympathetic fight or flight state. It's an important thing to have. The issue is, is most of us spend a lot of time in that sympathetic state, almost too much. There's some estimates out there that most people are spending between 60 and 80% of their time in sympathetic mode. And we should not be, we should be sending the majority of our time in our parasympathetic mode. 
And that's what we generally know as the rest and digest. And may I stop you for a second, Dr. Nawaz, because you said we should be spending uh, more time in the parasympathetic and most people are spending. And honestly, in today's time, I, I noticed that people do not know how to get into a parasympathetic state. And I think that's key as well. So we can come to that much later. And how does the... Uh, support, I mean, how does understanding the Vedas now help us with that transition? Absolutely. And, and this is where the branches of the vagus nerve come in and actually play a really important role. And we can talk about the few other uh, branches that we can utilize to actually stimulate vagus nerve function to put us from sympathetic towards that parasympathetic state. I'm just going to dig a little bit deeper into that parasympathetic state because we know it generally as a rest and digest state. This is the state that allows us to get into a restful state. This is, we need to be able to get into a parasympathetic state in order to allow us to get to sleep. We cannot sleep when we're in fight or flight. We cannot create good, deep, restful sleep. We can't have REM. We can't get into the multiple uh, waves of our sleep effectively if we're sitting in that sympathetic zone. So understanding that we need to be able to shift easily into that parasympathetic zone is really important. That's the rest piece. The digest piece is this is we also need to be in a calm zone to allow for our digestion to occur. When we're eating our food, if we're eating in a rush, if we're eating in a drive through or in a convenience area and we're just rushing and shoveling the food down, we're not actually sending the signals to our digestive organs, our stomach, our digestive, our, our tongue. We're not sending the signals to our intestines to actually break down and absorb the nutrients from that food. Even if we're choosing really good food, we tend not to be getting the healthiest nutrients from those. And so it's important to be able to shift into that parasympathetic mode. I'm also gonna add that in that parasympathetic mode, in addition to rest and digest, this is where recovery occurs. And this is an important thing to, an important concept to understand because we, we will have stressors. Every day we will have things that break us down, beat us up in whatever way, whether it's hermetic stressors like going to the gym and exercising, or whether it's uh, the kids driving you absolutely mad at, at their bath time and not wanting to listen to you. Whatever those stressors are, we're going to feel those. And our ability to recover from those stressors and be able to take on the new stressors the next day is mediated through that vagus nerve as well. And that has to do with that rest piece and getting really good sleep and being able to get into that recovery stage. So parasympathetic plays that really important role. So these two branches, we need to be able to shift between the two. It's not like you're either in sympathetic or in parasympathetic, it's a continuum. And ideally we should be on that parasympathetic side between 60 and 80% of the time, ideally. Most people are on the opposite side and that's what we need to be addressing is how do we shift from that sympathetic fight or flight state into the parasympathetic state? Now the vagus nerve is the nerve that mediates the parasympathetic nervous system. The vast majority of parasympathetic signals within our body go through the vagus nerve. That's important. What's really funny though, is only 15% of the vagus nerve mediates parasympathetic information. So that entire system runs through the vagus nerve, but there's 80, 85% of other information that's actually flowing through that nerve. And so when doctors know about it as the parasympathetic nerve, 
they're forgetting about the other 85% of information that flows through that nerve. This is where we can really make positive shifts, positive changes, and really understand that uh, the other functions are very important to understand as well. One of those functions, the major, major function here is 80% of the information on vagus nerve is actually afferent information. It's information coming from the gut, from the organs, from the heart, the lungs, the intestines, the neuropod cells in the uh, enteric nervous system. These are the, the nerves that um, are stimulated by sugar, uh, fatty acids, and, and amino acids within our intestines signal directly through the vagus nerve to the brain. And also the understanding and that, that link between microbiome and what's going on in the brain is signaled through that 80% of information going through the vagus nerve to the central nervous system. Think of the vagus nerve as primarily the gut-brain axis. In addition to that, it has the parasympathetic information. So we've got 80% of the information that's coming from the gut going up to the brain. We've got 15% of the information as the parasympathetic information that leaves about 5% of information that still needs to be accounted for that's on this nerve. 4% of that information is actually motor. Most of the nerves within our body are motor or sensory nerves. These are nerves that are sending signals to muscles, telling those muscles to activate, turn on, or to turn off. And the other nerves are sensory nerves. These are the ones that are attached to our skin, to our muscles that are sending signals back to our brain as to the, the feelings that we have, the touch, the taste buds, things like that. These are sens uh, sensory nerves. They're doing the senses, okay? That's what makes up these 5%. 4% of that is motor. So the vagus nerve in the neck sends, I said earlier, branches to the pharyngeal and laryngeal muscles. These are the muscles at the back of the throat, okay? And down towards the vocal cords. So these branches go to the pharyngeal muscles to allow for our airway to stay open and strong. This is a really big piece of the puzzle when it comes to sleep. Too many people are suffering from sleep apnea. Too many people are suffering from poor breathing patterns when they're sleeping, oftentimes breathing through their mouth. We know that that's not good. Um, being able to maintain a patent and open airway is vital to being able to get good sleep. And the breath is really truly the, the tool that we have to change from sympathetic to parasympathetic. And so the airway is really important piece of that puzzle being able to keep the pharyngeal muscles strong and tight and not weakening so that they collapse on one another, creating apnea or apneic events, meaning that we're not getting oxygen in and not getting carbon dioxide out is a really important feature here. The other muscles that are innervated by the vagus nerve are the laryngeal muscles. These are the muscles that actually go to uh, surround the vocal cords. And what they do is they essentially pull and tension on the vocal cords, creating the opportunity to create pitch and tone within our voice. So the reason I can go really, really low or really, really high with my voice is because I have vagus nerve signaling to the laryngeal muscles, allowing my tone and my pitch of my voice to change based on the tension that's created within the vocal cords by those muscles. So this is another tool, and these are tools that we'll be able to use when we're actually activating the vagus nerve, when we're actually stimulating it and making it work. That last 1% that was missing from the calculation is actually sensory information. And this we talked about 
uh, right at the beginning, which is the innervation from the ear. And these are actually uh, branches of the vagus nerve that uh, collect sensory information from skin on the oracle, on the uh, external part of the ear here. And it's not on the outside rims of the ear. It's kind of a tough picture to see, but it's on the inner part of the skin of the oracle. Um, I've got pictures in the book. I recommend if you're really interested in looking this up, Google it and check where the vagus, the auricular branch of vagus nerve is. And it'll show you specifically where that sensory information comes from. I love it. I mean, I don't think I've ever had such a deep dive, Dr. Nawaz, and I can't wait to order your book because I definitely want that deep dive now. And uh, most of what you spoke about, I can think of connections to sleep in all these areas of the vagus nerve. I mean, there's so much that we can utilize in terms of our voice, in terms of uh, practices. And truly, I do believe that sleep apnea is something that people do check at one point in time, and it can, the result can vary based upon your state of inflammation or your state of health. I don't think it's a lifelong sentence the way it's thought to be, but that's another conversation altogether. But um, could we jump a little bit into the actual aspects of all the ways in which the vagus nerve plays a role in our sleep. Yeah, certainly. So like I said uh, earlier on, we talked about that recovery and that rest piece, being able to turn off certain uh, fight or flight mechanisms, being able to shunt blood flow towards certain areas to allow us to think a little bit more clearly. These are all very specific functions within the vagus nerve and that parasympathetic branches of the vagus nerve. Like I said earlier, we need to be able to shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic to allow us to get into a state where we can sleep effectively. Now, there isn't um, a specific branch of vagus nerve that allows you to sleep. That's not what we're saying here. But when the vagus nerve is toned, when it is working effectively, your ability to shift into that parasympathetic state is much, much better. And that allows us to be able to turn on melatonin production that allows us to turn on um, deep breathing patterns that allow us to shift into those waves of sleep and actually get into that sleep um, pattern that we want to be in where we get that restful REM and, and deep sleep pattern and, and the ideally five waves of sleep as we're sleeping. Okay. So when it comes to being able to turn on that system, being able to shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic, it all simply comes down to one thing, and that is your breath. Everything that you can do, everything that, that uh, all of the therapies that are out there, all of the, the shamans and all of the like biohacking tools that are out there, the intention of all of them, and I'm not downing any single one of them, they're all meant to help you breathe and breathe calmly and breathe relaxedly because that breath when fast and shallow stimulates a sympathetic response it puts us into fight or flight and when that breath is slow and diaphragmatic and uh, calm and deep that allows us to get into parasympathetic state 
Can I stop you for a second, Dr. Nawaz, because you said about slow, deep breath. And um, I mean, there's a difference here that I'd love for you to give your thoughts on before you go further. And that is that a lot of we have a lot of apps, we have a lot of tools where even the smart watches have these settings where you switch on something and it tells you to breathe. And I find personally that even at the slowest setting, I feel it's too fast. Uh, and I feel those are programmed in a way where I just feel if someone's breathing at that level, they are still very, very sympathetic, dominant. Um, and I've been teaching yoga for more than 20 years. And one of the things that for me personally, I realized or thought of was that vagal tone has a lot to do with the difference in length between the exhale and the inhale, where the longer the exhale is in comparison to the inhale, then the better the vagal tone. And none of these smartwatches or apps ever had anything to do with that. The inhale and the exhale were the same length. And they had these three settings. And as I said, at the slowest setting, I found as if I felt I was being forced to hyperventilate. Now, this is a very concerning issue, given that most of the world is basing a lot of these practices on these apps and smartwatches. So I think we you must clarify a little bit about that as to how should the breath look when we are trying to slow it down. I will say you are absolutely 100% correct. Uh, the the thing that dictates whether you're able to shift into parasympathetic mode more easily and increase vagal tone is extended exhalation time significantly greater than inhalation time. The length that you inhale must be ideally half of that time that you exhale in order to fully stimulate vagus nerve function. And a lot of these apps out there, I, in, in I believe beginner states are probably helpful but when you get to be more advanced, having taught yoga for 20 years, whatnot, um, you've, you've gone well beyond that. And that's where most people aren't, I believe. So I think a lot of the apps are built with beginners in mind. I would love for a lot of these apps to be able to say, okay, well, if you're not a beginner, if you're intermediate, maybe if you're advanced, this is where we can get into these states where you're doing a quick two second, three second inhale and doing a 10 second exhale, for example right? Where we're really focusing on the timing of that exhale, even holding as well. So things like Wim Hof breathing, the, the Wim Hof app, these might be really interesting tools for people that are a little bit more advanced. But oftentimes, I think when we get to a point where we're advanced, we don't need to necessarily focus on these external tools like apps to tell us about these things. We almost have, uh, I imagine you have uh, to this extent, almost this internal feedback mechanism saying, I need to slow, I can hold longer, I can exhale longer, I can really push and really use my diaphragm, where the vast majority of people that are beginning don't have that diaphragmatic control as yet. And so I'm, I'm sure they're good, but they're certainly not effective in, in those longer terms. So yes, the thing that dictates whether we're able to shift sympathetic to parasympathetic is primarily due to longer exhalation times. No question. 
Perfect. And you were speaking about the breath and uh, also about sleep. So maybe we could get back into our sleep conversation and how uh, the vagus now. So what is it telling us if someone is unable to switch to a parasympathetic state? And how would they know that the vagus to a nerve needs some support and love? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's there's a few areas or a few things that tend to create problems that the vagus nerve is unable to handle when they occur over a long period of time. The most simple ones, the easiest ones, like a whiplash type of injury, for example, where there's actually physical trauma or like a surgical cutting of the vagus nerve. These are really acute incidences. They're really damaging. They, they can really create major problems long-term. But I'm going to dig more into the more common issues that are out there, which are these chronic lifestyle choices generally that trigger a lot of these problems longer term. So the chronic health conditions that really push us downwards, that really hold us back are things like a really heavily inflammatory, um, hyper-processed, high in sugar diet. These things are, are basically like eating inflammation. They're creating this inflammatory response because they're allowing the microbiome to shift into this uh, acidic environment where it's creating inflammatory responses. It's almost allowing that, that microbiome to shift uh, and, and create these, the breakdown of the gut, allowing for the immune system to react in an inflammatory way. So really the, the, one of the top things that we can do is start to create a diet, um, a nutrition plan that contains primarily whole foods. I'm not here to preach any specific diet. I'm not going to talk vegan versus carnivore or paleo versus keto. I, I want to talk about don't eat hyper-processed, hyper fast, convenient foods all the time. Allow yourself a few incidents here and there, but like vast majority of the time, 80, 90% of the time, we need to be eating whole foods and we need to be eating them in a non-stressed state. One of the bigger problems, especially over the last couple of years, is that a lot of people have been working from home on Zoom calls, on their computers, sitting on their butt, typing away for hours and hours, and then they go and they grab whatever meal, healthy, unhealthy, but they sit down at their desk and they continue that meal in an area where stress tends to occur, in a physical location where they're stressed. So A, choose a healthier meal, but B, step away for 10 or 15 minutes while you're taking that time to get into that parasympathetic rest and digest state. Because when you're sitting at your desk, you may not think so, but you're probably breathing more shallow. You're probably a little bit more stressed because this new email popped up or this new message popped up from your boss saying, I need this done, I need that done. 10 or 15 minutes being able to step away from that area. Ideally go outside if that's a possibility for you step away from that stressful environment and get yourself into an area where you're calm, where you can take a few deep breaths, maybe where you can do some of these vagus nerve activating exercises prior to uh, jumping into this crazy meal that you have snuck in within between your, your Zoom calls or whatever it is that you're doing, okay? Um, so th these are the, the first couple of major triggers that tend to create these problems. You had alluded earlier to the chiropractor that, or the drugless doctor, Dr. Bob, who talked about uh, posture and actual uh, joint issues that are going on. And how many of us have been sitting here slumped over a laptop for the last 24 months? 
right? We need to be in a space where we're physically moving, where our posture is optimized because that allows for optimal motion of our neck. There are tons of research uh, studies that have been coming out over the last few years that talk about the effect of neck postural issues, this uh, hyperkyphotic forward leaning posture that tends to create issues in the upper cervical areas. We're not specifically affecting the vagus nerve through those, but when we compress at that higher upper cervical area, we're actually impacting other nerves that stimulate uh, elevated blood pressure. With elevated blood pressure come higher risk of heart disease and uh, cardiovascular disease, period. So, A. And, and also the inability here. to wind down from stress if your blood pressure is elevated, then uh, even worrying about the blood pressure becomes a source of stress for many, many people. And I really want to just stay there for a second, Dr. Manavas, because you said something beautiful that we're all stuck. And, you know, I was just thinking that I mean, I've been, I do yoga every day in spite of that, I can feel the pressure in that exactly where you describe that the upper neck when I've sat too long. And this is probably something that is here to stay. Um, so um, I would love when you do talk about what can we do to also sneak in a little bit of support on uh, how do we break down our days so that we don't develop these issues and put pressure on our vagus nerve. Yeah, the vast majority of people that are listening right now, they're not probably watching. I'm standing right now. I uh, Early on, uh, when I was setting up my office pre-pandemic, thank God, um, I purchased a standing desk attachment, which literally allows me to compress and push my laptop and, and my setup up and down. And I got a nice little cushion mat for me to pull out every time I stand up. And my goal is every time I do a call that's 30 minutes or longer that I'm standing and anytime I'm sitting, uh, anytime I have to do emails or do some deep thinking and deep work, I can sit down for a period of time. The goal is to be able to be up and down 50-50. All right, so 50% of the time standing, 50% of the time sitting. There's even times where I'll do some deep work where I'm just standing and allowing myself to focus on the screen and typing accordingly. If we create a, a setup at our station, at our desk, that we're sitting at the dining room table, for example, on a dining chair, slouched over a laptop without any opportunity to really get up and move, then we're really forcing ourselves to stay in that posture for however many hours that we're sitting at the computer. And often that's too many. So one of the major things that I'll recommend to anybody that's looking to uh, optimize if they're working at a laptop, for example, if they're working at a, at a computer or a station, stand and sit 50-50. That 50-50 allowance is, is quite large. There's a recent study that came out, I forget the exact um, numbers that came out of it. I believe it said that if you sit for more than five hours a day, then any exercise that you do through the entire week, any high intensity exercise that you do is essentially null and void. So we want to try to be in this sitting and standing 50-50 as much as possible. And something that I like to do as well in the middle of the day is get up and stretch, do a little bit of motion, get your hips moving a little bit. We can't be in this flexed hip sitting posture as much. We've all heard this term sitting is the new smoking. Really what we want to be doing is, is, 
uh, allowing for that that switch to occur. Because if we're getting back to work now, if people are driving to their jobs and they're sitting, they're driving in the car, they're sitting there, they're sitting at their office, they're sitting in their meeting room, and there's not a lot of up and down. And so allowing yourself to be in a standing position from about 50% of the time that you would be working will be 100% beneficial to your posture, to um, allowing your leg muscles to get back to work. And your leg muscles are really, really important when it comes to blood sugar management and actually using the carbohydrates that we might eat more effectively. So really important uh, information here. If anybody's dealing with blood sugar issues, standing at your desk actually really benefits you because it helps to uh, stimulate muscle growth within the hamstrings, the glutes, and the quads, which are your three biggest muscle groups. And those muscle groups use our blood sugar more effectively than any other cells within our body. And if we're sitting too often, those muscle groups tend to shrink down. So an hour, uh, allowing yourself to stand up for two, three, four hours a day will really benefit your blood sugar levels as well. It's something I've personally noticed. And um, how would somebody know that their vagal nerve needs support? and uh, needs is not in a good place. The most basic way to know that your vagus nerve is not working is if you have some sort of inflammatory condition or some sort of inflammatory um, issue going on. That's the, we don't need to go and buy anything to tell us about that necessarily. If you're dealing with breathing issues, if you're dealing with inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, digestive issues, autoimmune conditions, there's a vagus tone issue because the inflammation level is too high. And through the parasympathetic nervous system, the vagus nerve actually controls inflammation. It actually stimulates the cholinergic anti-inflammatory system, which I spoke about very early on in our call, that helps to control the level of inflammation. When our inflammation is out of control, it means that the vagus nerve is not stimulated, not functioning well. Our vagal tone is not where we want it to be. So that's the most simple way to know that there's some sort of issue. Another simple uh, quick thing that anybody can do really at home is a test to see how their bowel transit time is. Essentially, from when you eat food, how long does it take for your body to break it down, assimilate, digest, and excrete the unused portion and get rid of those uh, specific foods. So a really simple uh, test, this was actually given to me by uh, Dr. Patel as well. Um, he recommended going and getting uh, white sesame seeds because we can't break down white sesame seeds and we don't need a lot of them, just a tiny little bit, enough that we just get a spoonful of it and put it into water and we drink that water without chewing the seeds. And you mark down the time when you've drank that water with the seeds in it. And then you check to see, and this requires you to look in the bowl after you've gone, but check to see when you start to see these white sesame seeds. For obvious reasons, you're not gonna use black sesame seeds. So we'll start to look for when the white sesame seeds start showing up and when they stop showing up, okay? In an ideal world, in an ideal situation, if your digestion allows for those white sesame seeds to show up within 16 to 20 hours, after you've ingested them, that means that your digestion is working more effectively and it's actually quite good. Anything less than 12 hours. So if it's a very short amount, so between 12 and 16 is okay. Between 20 and 24 is okay. 
Anything less than 12 or more than 24 means that your bowel transit time is very, very long or very short, and it's not working well. It means that your digestive tract is not absorbing foods effectively or it's backed up in some way, okay? So the goal is between that 16 to 20 hour timeline, okay? That's a bowel transit time test. Anybody can do this and it really doesn't cost very much to try that out. And usually I used to suggest eating beets so that beets for obvious reasons, <laughs> there's color coding there. Um, and don't but, forget that you ate beets because sometimes it scares people. <laughs> yes, that is true as well. And I love that you said, uh, spoke about how you need to look at the physiological inflammatory aspects to understand the state of the vagal nerve. Because when you ask somebody, obviously it's harder to make the connection if you're just trying to get people to think about whether they're more sympathetic dominant, because many times they're not going to uh, realize what that is, or they're going to be in a state of denial about it and just convince themselves otherwise. So that's a great recommendation. I know that we're almost out of time. So I'd love for us to just come into a few practices which are simple and safe, which people can begin to do right away, which will help to um, tone the vagal nerve. And I know you already spoke a little bit about the breath and the diaphragmatic breath and having the exhalation longer. So anything that you could share would be great. Yeah, certainly. So one of the uh, best ways to help see, it'll also help you see which state you're in, but um, to shift your breath is a very simple practice that I have people do uh, when they're working with me, or if I notice that their breathing is quite quick and shallow, is to put one hand on your chest. You can do this sitting, standing, and one hand on your belly, okay? And as you sit and you kind of gauge where you're at, start to take a few regular breaths and notice which hand is moving. Is the hand on your chest the one that's expanding or is it the hand that's on your belly that's moving forward and backwards? If you are in a sympathetic state, it will be your top hand more often than not. And if you're in a parasympathetic state, it will be your hand that's on your belly. And that is a direct sign as to if you are using your diaphragm to breathe. And the way to allow yourself to shift is to consciously shift your inhales and exhales to your diaphragm by allowing your belly to expand on an inhale and to go inwards on an exhale. Very, very slow on that exhale. And if you can extend that out, if you can do a three second inhale and a six second exhale or a four second inhale and an eight second exhale, you know that you're going to shift yourself immediately from that sympathetic in towards that parasympathetic state. It really is going to allow the vagus nerve to turn back on. The diaphragm as it goes up and down, not only is it creating this vacuum space above within the lungs, it's actually also massaging and moving the organs below. If there's a really great video I have that shows this, that as the diaphragm comes down, it actually creates motion and massage within the stomach, the intestines, the kidneys, the liver, all of those organs are actually physically getting manipulated when you're using your diaphragm breathing. So it's not just about the breath, but the breath is a simple tool that you can use to allow those organs to start to work more, more effectively.
And we can uh, add that video into the show notes so that people can go and click on that and look at it. Um, um, any final words for us? Yeah, just two very quick exercises I can add in as well. Um, I mentioned the motor nerves of the vagus nerve, and these are where we can actually create specific vagus nerve activated areas. Not only are we worried about keeping our airway patent and open, but humming and chanting and gargling are three really easy ways to specifically target laryngeal vibration, laryngeal muscles. And those muscles, like I said earlier, are innervated through the vagus nerve. So if we are physically vibrating those muscles, physically vibrating the vocal cords, we are stimulating our vagus nerve. Something I like to do with my kids, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old, when everybody's a little bit riled up before a meal, we all sit down and we do a little bit of humming. We just go, hmm. That's stimulating the vagus nerve by creating the vibration. It's also slowing our exhale because when we hum, we're exhaling as well. So we're going into a long, prolonged, deep exhale and it calms everybody down and gets us into this rest and digest state more effectively. Humming is wonderful for kids. Gargling is also a really great exercise for us to do, to just keep a glass nearby uh, when you're brushing your teeth in the morning and the evening and you try to gargle as hard as you possibly can with maybe some warm water and salt and do your best to clear out what's going into the back of the throat. But as you're opening that up, you're stimulating pharyngeal uh, muscles to keep the airway open and laryngeal muscles to push the water out and actually creating a humming sound during that same time. So gargling, humming, chanting is even quite good. Singing, things like that will be really beneficial in calming us and getting us into that parasympathetic state. But it all comes back to the breath and that's really important to remember. And I think I just wanna add Dr. Nawaz is that Brahmari, which is the bee's breath where you just make a fist and you insert your thumb into your ear and then you exhale and you hum along with the exhalation. And you'll always find that the exhalation when you're humming with it is much longer exhale than a regular exhale. And I think so that combining two of those and it's a win-win because we are naturally allowing our exhale to be much longer and we are humming and we're getting at those vocal cords. And that was a great conversation. I truly believe that I learned so much from you today and uh, it was a pleasure and honor having you. And we all have, we have all our guests complete our show mantra. So I'd like you to complete that as well. If sleep is the new medicine, then... How would Dr. Nawaz complete it? If sleep was a new medicine, and it, I truly believe it is, uh, I would focus on the important calming wind down prior to bedtime. Um, for those who are watching on video right now, I'm wearing blue blocking uh, Viva Ray glasses. I know Rudy's been on the show. Um, and, and we have the Viva Rays link on the show notes of every episode. So anyone can just go there and click on it and get their own. And I think it's amazing because Rudy, uh, Rudy's uh, Viva Rays, which whenever I wear it, I find that my sleep is way deeper. I have, I'm a lot more in REM sleep. I have more vivid dreams and 
uh, I just wake up super refreshed because I think that is also very key to looking at sleep. Sometimes people can sleep even nine hours and they feel they've slept well. Even the tracker can show it, but then they don't wake up refreshed. And that's part of what is good sleep where you're waking up vibrant and ready for the next day. Um, but thank you, Dr. Nawaz. It was indeed my pleasure to host you here today and um, uh, I will go and get your book and we'll attach the link so that people can go and get the book and have an even deeper dive into the Vegas now. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed the show. Just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. This is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified health professional. This information is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for personal help on your health journey, do seek out a medical practitioner. Please do make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with your doctor or otherwise qualified healthcare professional. It is in no way intended as medical advice as a substitute for medical counseling or as treatment or cure for any particular health condition. Be sure to always work directly with a qualified health practitioner before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle that may feel out of your realm of comfort or understanding. If you are looking for an allied functional medicine practitioner, do seek out more information on www.phytothrive.com. It is important that you have someone who is qualified and understands your health personally in order to provide adequate care, especially when it comes to chronic health conditions.